Welcome to the Wonder Learn Podcast. I'm your host, Franz Tapon. In this episode, I interviewed the hunter of the year. I asked him, why do poachers poach? How have things changed for hunters since the previous century? Are hunters an endangered species? Why do hunters only target old males? Why don't they also hunt old females? And why can't we just convert all the hunting zones into photographic safari zones? And now for one important favor before you listen to this podcast, can you please go to Apple Podcasts and write a review? Right now I've got about four out of five star ratings, and that's mainly because this one little jerk has given me a one star rating and another person gave me a three star rating because I swear too much. I would like to bounce this out, give me a few five star reviews, and that will help me boost into a little bit higher ratings. That would do me a lot of good. So write a short little review, hit five stars, and thank you very much. In this episode, I have Jakob Ustezen. You won an award. Hunter of the Year. Right, yeah, that's correct, yeah. We've been Professional there. hunter. Yeah, that's um, right. So, as opposed to amateur hunter. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess, you know, if you want to really define it. <laughs> so tell us about your history. Um, you were born in South Africa? Yeah, I was actually born in uh, Namibia, which and I know a lot, not a lot of people know this, but it's a country just north of South Africa. So yeah, my ancestors arrived in Africa some 300 years ago, and um, when what was called the, the Great Trek, when uh, the the settlers didn't want to um, stay under English rule, um, around 1840 they they moved out of the the Cape Peninsula. And yeah, my my ancestors went uh, straight due north and through Botswana and what was called the the first land trek because it was mostly desert parts of the very dry arid regions. They they went through and they finally ended up in Angola and actually stayed in Angola for a while until uh, you know due to some obvious political reasons later on moved back south and settled in uh, northern part of Namibia. Here we are at the Safari Club International Conference, and there are a lot of hunters running around. Why did they pick you <laughs> out of all the hunters that are there? Why are you the best? Well, there's a lot of criteria around it. And, yeah, certainly um, I think when they did the introduction the other day, standing there backstage, you can't hear every single word they're saying. But they obviously talked about that a little bit um, but I think a big part of it is, um, you know, well, it's your presence, you know, having been around here. It's, it's not just your, your about your hunting skills, but obviously it's a big contributing factor because if you're not successful in hunting, you're not going to be around here for long enough. And a uh, big part is, you know, what we do in terms of uh, fundraising for organizations such as Safari Club International because they do fight a lot of battles for us as um, hunters, professional hunters, and, and as we would like to see ourselves also very much as conservationists from Africa, um, a big part of what we do in, in hunting is funding truly wildlife areas, which um, otherwise would be very hard to, to maintain and, and protect. But uh, increasingly over the last 22 years, this is my 22nd year attending the convention, and uh, things changed dramatically since... Um, Back in 1999, the first time I came over, and um, so our yeah, challenges are increasing every day, and more funds are needed to to um, provide, make sure we open, keep the channels open for for hunting, and in the bigger context of things, generating funds. What has changed in the last 20 years? 
Well, just the mostly the, the, the anti-stigma around hunting. A lot of people obviously think there is not a um, place for it in this modern-day society anymore. But what a lot of people don't know, that I mean, just purely because they don't spend time out down in the ground, um, and it, this is in Africa specifically, you know, um, rural populations in Africa are just exploding. You know, I mean, you're still sitting in this modern-day context where people are supposedly educated, but they, they still sit in rural Africa with families of 10, 12 children in a family which they can hardly support. They, they feed them with a ba- bag of maize meal, um, you know, a month kind of thing. Um, it, it's really poor communities, and they just, you know, but to them, their children is their, their wealth. But um, it's, it's really, end of the day, all these people need to make a living, so they need land to grow their crops, you know, to, to grow the corn that they need to back and to feed these people. They uh, need land to feed the cattle, you know, to feed their families. And so that's really where the human-wildlife conflict really comes in and, and where the habitat for wildlife is on, on the decrease. And, yeah, sorry, and so, you know, hunting is quite essential because a lot of touristic parts in Africa, you know, there's national parks, you know, there's, there's a place for everybody in this world. And... Um, if you're from Africa, Africa's got just a, a different type of special magic to it, you know, and, and especially, you know, when I was born there in 1973, obviously, you know, infrastructure was created big time, you know, over the last 30, 40 years. So just in that regard, things have changed. Um, and But as the world develops, you know, yeah, I mean, populations, populations are increasing and um, it, it just becomes more and more difficult to maintain true wildlife habitat um, because essentially in one way or the other everybody's trying to to make a buck to survive. You mentioned something that I wish people talked about more and that a lot of the wildlife that is disappearing in Africa is simply because homo sapiens are reproducing very fast and encroaching on habitat and therefore that it's not so much that we're hunting them to death it's not like we're chasing after them but i think the perception of a lot of people is that why are giraffes why are elephants decreasing in population it's because the hunters because they're the ones who've got the guns and that's what people think so and they don't necessarily say well if somebody's having 10 children and and a bunch of families are having lots of children that all the things you just said and how can you does SCI have some sort of effort in to try to educate the, the, the African population to say, okay, these are the consequences of, of a high population? Or do they do anything to say, hey, maybe we should bring down the population rate? Well, a lot of that has to do rather, I think, um, with the operators. The, and, and let's talk now about the areas where hunting operators um, operate in. And I take myself, for instance, you know, we have these conversations with our people ourselves. And I mean, and honestly, and, and I'm talking to people that's educated, you know, they, they, can, they speak English, they speak the language, you know, they've been in schools. Um, and, and they'll just uh, tell me in, in simple English, you know, you know, us black people, we're not the same as your white people, you know, and that's not being a racist remark. That is just the way they think because, you know, they still practice the what is generally known as the Lobola system, you know, where... You know, the, the daughter. Right, price. Right, yeah. So when daughters are married off, you know, the the father gets income, you know. And I think that's a big part of it, you know. It's also, it's also a business in a certain way to speak, you know. Mm-hmm. But it's just part of the culture. And one has to respect that, I guess, to a certain degree. 
There's um, also it's also a retirement form. You know, it's a retirement savings account. In other words, if you have ten children, there's a good chance that one of them will do well enough to support you in the future. Exactly. You know. So so yeah. I mean, uh, one can look at it. it is, there is a lot of method to the madness around it, especially the way they look at it because th- those are the traditions that they grow up in and that's what they're used to you know one, one has to to respect it i guess to a certain degree but yeah i mean so if SCI would certainly make contributions i mean clinics are built you know joint ventures are done between organizations such as SCI and and hunting outfitters um you know and yeah if, if clinics are built and you know, educated people are put in there but it is still it is still a very very hard battle, you know. And, and, and it's not just that. I mean, it, now you can bring in the whole um, issue on, on more serious poaching. When we look at rhino poaching and, and elephant poaching, so at the end of, of of that whole scenario, there is rich people and or rich crooked people in the world sitting making money out of it. You know, the guy that's on the ground that, that's actually going to poach the elephant or the rhino. In a bigger context, he actually gets a very receives a very minuscule amount of it, you know. But for him, it's survival, and and obviously, what you find is that they've got nothing else to do. I mean, there's the unemployment rate so high, um, you know. And the bottom line is, my dad always used to say, you know, if if, if your if your belly, if your stomach starts to talk, it starts to ache, you know, then you pay attention. And so they want to feed their families. They're also proud of their families. And they'll do anything. If they don't do anything, they're going to die of hunger. So he's willing to take the risk if he's, you know, if he's going to get caught, get shot out there, or get killed by an elephant because he's got inadequate equipment, wounding it, you know. And and that's why, you know, the 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 populations of these animals are in the decline due to poaching, because hunters have got adequate equipment. You know, it's typically a good, clean kill. You know, people practice. You know what we're doing. Um, but these guys go in there, and they might end up wounding five or ten elephants before they get one down on the ground. So the rest going to die somewhere else because they're not because they're very much aware of the fact that they don't have adequate equipment so they're not necessarily going to follow them like we will and finish the job because you know it's not just an ethical thing you know they they want to get in there and get out of there as quick as they can before they get caught. So yeah so they they on the the bottom of, of that um, whole pyramid and um, and again it's just yeah, the, the crooked people on top of it that it's really making the big bucks out of it so that's the sad thing that we're fighting in this world um the guys down on the ground are just um or basically doing the job let's shift a little bit to the actual nuts and bolts of hunting in other words what sets you apart as an exceptional hunter what do you think you do differently than the typical hunter out there or maybe a newer hunter that goes out there is it the way that you prepare for the hunt ahead of time? Is it your equipment? Is it the way you stalk the prey, the way you set bait? Or, you know, how, how what is it that, I'm not asking you to reveal all your secrets, but <laughs> some of the secret sauce of what makes Yako so successful. Bottom line is it comes back to your earlier question um, and, and how this is all put together in terms of you know, what I said, being here for so long. It, I think it all boils down to experience at the end of the day. It's like anything else, you know, you do it for long enough, you know, I mean, certain things and especially obviously the important things just come natural, you know, it just becomes second nature, making sure that everything is running, you know, clients um, spay, spend a lot of money to, to get over to Africa, you know, and I mean, and we say spend a lot of money, you know, to just run operations where we operate in remote areas is very expensive and um, 
to purely getting clients there, the investment they make just to be there, to have our presence felt um, in itself is, is a big anti-poaching um, tool, um, let alone the, the actual anti-poaching that is done. So through all of that, you know, protecting your areas, um, you know, when people obviously what we advertise um, and, and market in terms of the experience that we offer is the the real, true, traditional African experience. You know, so we really try to keep our areas f- free from, from um, human encroachment, um, keep it as natural as we possibly can, and just really create a truly great experience for the client. So, yeah, essentially the hunting part of it makes it a very, very small portion of it. It's, it's really, we really try to focus on the experience and the adventure itself. And, and I think that's probably been the, the key to our success is because we have found um, over the years just being out there and, and being able to, to, if I can use the old cliche, to smell the roses, um, you know, things, things just happen. It comes about, and if you, if you sustainably manage your area through hunting, um, it's rather easy to um, stick to our ethical rules of trying to take out just older um, specim- uh, male specimens that's basically entering the the last quarter of their lifespan, um, basically done breeding. Uh, you know, so in general, you're not affecting breeding herds. Um, the animals that, that, that basically, if we can put it like this, make the sacrifice for for the rest to survive, is a, a very small percentage. And uh, really, if one understands the bigger picture, um, makes a, a total amount of sense. Some people may be wondering why hunters don't kill the old females that are beyond their reproductive age as well. All right, you get to to, to private land in mostly in southern Africa and to a certain degree Botswana, but Namibia, South Africa, Zimbabwe to a certain degree as well. The landowners will do that um, because you know the the, the protein supply is is always. Um, very well distributed and I mean even in even if it's private land but there's, there's still local communities around or or um, again funds are generated just if it's um, like you have in, in the United States where people come and uh, will draw tax just to hunt does for meat the same uh, you know practice exists over there where people will will go and hunt for meat purposes and again funds generated for that you know helps to maintain the land so it does happen the i think the issue though when it comes to uh what we do in in government areas um obviously when i say government areas um total free range areas which are mostly government land managed by government and the government uh, conservation uh, departments and they typically have a government official with us out there hunting as well and i just think from a management standpoint, in some countries, um, and I'm not so sure these days anymore, but I know like in Zimbabwe, for instance, you know, it was allowed where we operate a lot in Tanzania. It is not allowed. And I think it's just a rule that it's just been been laid down um, to create any confusion on what represents an old female and, and what not. Um, because... It, it's not obviously for, with males. It's much easier to distinguish that factor. Just I mean, on a, I'm talking on quick split seconds, you know. Then you also have to understand that there is also your your predators that's roaming around in these areas. So typically, you have to leave a certain percentage of 
um, and let's call it then your your weaker animals, you know, which will be it's either your your young, very young animals, just born babies, um, and older older animals, not just specifically females, but that's basically slower slowing down, and those are uh, m- more typical your your prey for these predators and scavengers that has to survive. So you have to maintain the balance of that as well to make sure there's enough food for the whole ecosystem to survive. I see. So basically. You're, by not hunting the females, one thing is that they're not as easy to identify as the males, the older males, the age of the female, I suppose. But also, as you're saying, is that, well, maybe a hyena or a vulture or whatever, they need something. To, and so if, if a female keels over on her just by of old age, then uh, these uh, other animals can come and they have dinner. <laughs> right. No, it's, it's practically that, you know. I mean... You see that a lot. I mean, you see a lot of clips, you know, of uh, um, lions taking on buffalo, you know. And, I mean, th- they just have a way to to find the weak links, you know. And um, and that's what it's, what it's all about. Um, obviously, animals that are more in the prime of their life and uh, um, more uh, agile, moving around and, and uh, able to to get out of the harm's way, if I can put it like that, you know, are harder to catch. But somewhere along the line, um, there's always this old joke, you know, like a herd of buffalo can only move as fast as, as the slowest one, you know. So inevitably the, the slowest one they gets taken out. So, you know, and the herd gets to be faster and, and you know, and the survival rate's better, you know. But, yeah, but it's just a, a very, very graphic description of how it works. So, yeah. Now let's ask a question regarding the far future. So I'm looking 60 years ahead when you and I are both dead. So don't worry, whoever listens to these projections, <laughs> you'll never be able to say you're, you'll be dead by the time they tell you you're wrong. But what is the future of hunting, let's say 40, 50, 60 years from now, toward the end of this century? What do you think is the reality? What's it going to be like? Because you have to imagine that Africa right now has about 1.3 billion people. By then, it's going to have close to 4 billion and so roughly you know tripling or quadrupling of the population and meanwhile you have forces that want to discourage hunting on all levels there's bans trophy do you think this is a trend that might continue so that the hunting is just almost untenable or maybe just on private small private reserves will it be kind of a a lost art like um making was it uh, horses, they have the horseshoes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, who does that anymore? Right, right. <laughs> um, whereas before, two centuries ago, three centuries ago, everybody knew how to make a horseshoe. Right, yeah, <laughs> um, so do you th- what, what does your opinion, your crystal ball, tell you? Yeah, well, I wouldn't quite exactly call it the crystal ball, but... Um, your foggy be- ball. <laughs> 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 Probably more something like that. But, um, no, yeah, to be quite honest, uh, you know, if we're honest with ourselves, you know, we, we've... When we, currently fighting for what we believe in and what we know is right and you know because even for those who don't understand it's hard to believe that that we actually care you know for for the wilderness where we operating in out there but the future is not looking good um i mean uh, like i said the the fight's just intensifying every day basically you know it's not just um politics and governance but um like you said the human explosion and um I think sadly, finally, yeah, it's going to come down to just private land that's going to survive. Um, and uh, and hunting on private land, you know, it's it's 
there's different horses for different courses and you know everybody does appreciate the different scenarios and, and what they're doing personally for me I'm very much big into free ranging wild areas um, don't most hunters I mean if they had enough money isn't that what they prefer I mean who who would rather have like a small little pen of like <laughs> a one square kilometer and go hunt a lion I mean who actually there's nobody who likes that does no exactly you know I mean but that's a, that's the problem we're dealing with you know and I mean that's where we'll benefit so much more if we can actually get the hand ties just on board to make time to, to, to listen to what is said and done and why we need to, to keep these wild areas surviving and, and who's paying for that and how it's funded because um, by continuing um, fighting the, hand, the, the hunting part of it at the rate they do and, and using political structures and, and what I like to refer, to refer to as allowing politicians, political playballs just to, to get votes to stay in power wherever they are because essentially that's a case they don't care what's going on because we all know the truth of what's happening down there on, on the ground then um, you know they are driving it's not a matter of driving the industry in, in the ground they're driving all the conservation efforts and wildlife and wildlife habitat into the ground and they won't realize it until it's too late and and what's going to be left over then is going to be only practically game ranch hunting which um, is, like you said, you know, I mean, everybody really wants to, to do the free range, you know. And especially if you look at Americans, you know, there's, there's so much free range hunting out here. And when they go over to Africa, that's what they expect to do, you know. And that is the real, true fair chase hunting. Yeah, you get big properties, private land, you know, that's huntable, that, that, that's also fair chase, you know, and there's also really good hunting available on that. But... Um, you know, it's one thing when you do that on plains game, but when you start to, you know, bring it down to animals such as elephants that just needs, you know, thousands of miles to, to be able to roam around and, and survive naturally, um, you know, bring in the lions. I mean, you can only have in an enclosed area if, if you, if you want to even do it for conservation purposes and just nice to have. And you can only have that many lions in an enclosed area, you know, where um, with their roam free and naturally, um, their natural survival rate obviously is so, so much better but that can only be done through true conservation and true funding but there is just way too many areas that's um, remote enough that people are not aware of and will never be aware of that, that needs this kind of funding and it can only be done through hunting so yeah but come back to your question is um, I don't know if, if we're not going to be able to change mindsets and and get people from these two polar opposites onto the same table and at least make time to listen to the um, differences and the, you know, to, to get the facts on the table and um, at least just give each other a chance. I mean, we understand, I think as hunters we very much understand that, um, you know, where anti-hunters come from, you know, I've always said, you know, we don't expect any, everybody to, to be hunters, you know, or to, to love hunting. Um, I think if that's the case, then you'll have a problem in this world. Um, I, it is a, a very, very specific um, activity. Uh, yeah, activity, and um, and I think only few people is is um, born to participate in it. You know, because people that hunt for the most of it don't do it out of blood first or anything else. You know, um, 
the the it starts with the challenge of stalking up on something, you know, and outsmarting them, and you know, animals with their natural skills to survive and stuff. It's 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 a great challenge, and you know, to to learn the skills to, to to outsmart them and actually do it right, and and get in there, and and you're close to the ground, you know, you smell the soil, you smell you smell the the fresh grass and leaves and everything else. I mean, the birds is going along. I mean, you, you just I always say there's there's no way to get as closely in touch with nature as when you do when you're hunting. And um, so if you take the number of hours and days and, and time and money that's spent on hunting versus the actual kill, if you want to call it that, um, you know, it, it takes a special person to just to have that patience for starters to, to do that and to, to meet their goals. And, and as you mature in it, it is um, certainly... A matter of, I mean, and again, people, it's hard to understand if you're not, if you've never done it, but you do appreciate and respect those animals because it gets to a point, certainly, um, where you certainly just justify. I mean, and f- if I take myself that's been doing this for 26 years, I can certainly justify, only justify continuing hunting because I understand um, not only the principles, but the outcome of the funds that's generated of doing it. I mean, if guys like myself and hundreds that's, you know, down here on the floor behind us decide to stop doing this, it will all be, you know, down the gutter in a in a heartbeat. So um, What will be down in the gutter? I mean, the industry itself. I mean, the industry, um, wildlife areas, you know, the wildlife themselves, you know, conservation areas. Um, but explain that to some people because they might be listening to this and saying, what do you if you take away all the hunters the wildlife goes away that doesn't make any sense you guys are shooting them all well and that's the thing because a lot of people don't understand that that there's quotas you know i mean there's it's government controlled um there's no government area where anybody and i think this is a lot of people think you know we just go in there and shoot left right and center whatever we like you know but um and that's also the the whole concept of taking off the whole oldest male specimens come in you know it's very selective very selective hunting and a quota that's set by government these quotas are determined through biological studies, um, you know, and, and game counts. So, and then obviously also the takeoff through the years, the sustainability of that is has been um, established. And um, so it's actually very, very scientific. So, I mean, if you take in a certain given area of the population you have, or and this is not just general average, you know, some areas might be a little bit more, others less, but you're lucky if you have, in, in terms of meeting our goals and ethics of, and what I said earlier, taking of older male specimens, if you have 6% of your population of that specific species that will meet that criteria, then, you know, you have a lot. So that's a very small percentage of what hunters actually take off. But that small percentage just generates so much money to maintain areas that are non unknown to <coughs> excuse me unknown to to the general public they never know of areas where we hunt that don't exist you know I mean you, people think and I think also a lot of people that just you know have no clue what's going on they think like you know we go into places like the Serengeti or Gorongoro crater or Kruger National Park or wherever it might be and you know just help ourselves you know as we please and they don't understand actually how strictly and how well it's controlled and managed what's the biggest misconception that people have you would say that you would really love to correct a big part of that is what I've just said that they you know they don't understand that it's controlled um, they they really think you know hunters pick up 
rifles, guns, and just drive out there and, you know, shoot. I mean, like, they shoot whatever they want. I mean, like... Hold on one second. Sorry to interrupt. But what about if they're saying to you, but wait, Jakob, why don't we just make them all photographic safari parks? Why can't we just make them all national parks? Why do we actually have to shoot anything? Why can't we just let, you know, safari parks exist. There's lots of plenty of free animals running around. Why can't we just make everything a safari park? Why do we have to have a single hunting block anywhere? Well, first of all, I mean, the safari parks that are existing currently, I mean, they're not necessarily 100% um, booked or occupied by tourists, you know, um, at any given time. But you're dealing with wild areas that um, carries um, bugs, such as Tsetsefly that's known to carry the sleeping sickness, um, area that are areas that are swampy, that are high breeding grounds, breeding grounds for mosquitoes carrying malaria, and and all sorts of other diseases. And and people don't understand. Being a hunter and being a adventurer, you have to endure a lot of um, uh, challenges out there physically, being out in the bush, and. Um, and even then, we see very often for people that that comes in to the deal that that's been interested, and you know, it's not easy. It's not. E- I mean, for us as professional hunters that live out there all the time, you you get used to it. But um, I mean, you go down and on the floor here and ask the hunters what they think about a setsy fly, you know. And you know, obviously, some of them, the hardened hunters, learn to tolerate it. But I mean, if a hunter that's a true adventurer that that's willing to, to sleep with the lions under the stars um, when a vehicle breaks down and, you know, just tough things out. And that's a small percentage of people in the world that can do that. So a lot of these these uh, areas is just not accessible and suitable for, for the general public. And um, the only way to protect it, because the big thing is generating funds, and, and generating the funds, I mean, like, if I take, for instance, is, I think it's like the... 2014 or 13 to 16, the Tanzanian government or government department, conservation department, published um, uh, figures of what the was a comparison of the income that photographic tourism generated versus hunting tourism and uh, tourist tourist hunting. And um, I mean, at that point, the average hunting was doing uh, you know four times more than the the photographic tourist also taken the the rate that the photographic tourists pay to the government per day, for instance, to be in the national parks like the Rua National Park and Serengeti and Gorongoro Crater, wherever, the carbon footprint that, you know, that leads to, I mean, and still it's a quarter of, of the hunting industry's income, but, I mean, we're talking thousands more people that has to enter those areas. And then you come to the Gorongoro Crater, which is already a very sensitive um piece of land um, yes that's right yeah thank you and mm-hmm. so um, so yeah there, there's always the pros and the cons you know, and, and the the deal is just that the hunting just generate I think the necessary income that's, that's, that's required for this just at, at such a much faster rate and a much less carbon footprint you know if we want to, to bring that into play then as well I just understand you correctly. Did you say that f- that in Tanzania, hunters bring in four times more revenue, not per capita, but actually not per person, not per hunter, yeah. but four times as a total gross amount yeah. than the photographic tourist yeah. industry? Yeah, and that and that's the actual money 
in fees that's paid to the government. So we're not talking the gross income that's that's paid to the expense of lodges and hotels and stuff. That's just the the so what the government makes out of the the thing. So they and of course there are probably at least a hundred, if not a thousand, photographic tours for every one hunter, probably something like that. Right. Yeah. I actually sat down and I made the calculation one day, but. Um, but yeah, practically, I mean, the numbers are just—it's it's just a huge, huge difference. Right, right. So clearly, the hunter is is contributing a lot more, at least to the government coffers, way more, on a on a per person basis, on a per capita basis, like hundreds of times more. Right. Yeah. It, I mean, it's clearly the the situation. Um, and like I said, you know, the, the last stats that I've seen in that regard was 2016. Um, and over the last three, four years, that certainly changed perhaps a bit because the market, the because of various pressures in the world, you know, the, in the hunting industry, declining a little bit. There is certainly certainly been less income for the government, but I, I'd still venture to say at this point that it's uh, may perhaps pretty equal at this point of time. But um, if you take out of a a possible. I think it's about 155 hunting areas that that should be available in Tanzania. Currently, only an odd 80 um, are occupied, and um, so I would say at least 50 percent of the of the balance of those blocks are are well. They'll never be the same. It'll take a lot of money and a lot of hard work to get them back to where they were because a lot of those blocks haven't been occupied for seven seven years, and some of them even up to 10 years. So. Yeah. And now some people might say, well, it's great that's not occupied because then wildlife returns. But actually what happens is that poachers return. Well, it's poachers, and it, but but mostly it's just... Agriculture? Yeah, agriculture. You know, the, the locals that live in the areas, you know, they just venture in there with the cows, um, you know, and they hang around there long enough. They start you know, doing bush clearing, getting rid of the trees and creating land to, to grow their crops. And yeah, and, and the animals are just driven off. Right, right. Well, Yako, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Congratulations on being the Professional Hunter of the Year in 2020. Well, thank you very much. Appreciate it. <laughs> and that concludes this episode of the Wander Learn podcast, where we explore travel, technology, and transformation. If you'd like to see the show notes with links to what we talked about, or if you'd like to comment on the show, or if you'd like to ask me a question, then go to wanderlearn.com and click on this episode. If you'd like to connect with me, just remember FTAPON. That's my first initial and my last name. FTAPON is the username I use on all social media. You can also get to my website by going to ftapon.com. And here's one last reason to remember FTAPON. If you like what I do and would like to get rewarded for supporting my projects, then go to patreon.com slash FTAPON. That's where you can pick up some remarkable rewards for as little as $2 a month. And now for five quick favors. Number one, subscribe to the WanderLearn podcast. Two, download it. Three, share it. Four, review it somewhere. And five, sign up for my newsletter at wanderlearn.com. Our theme music was composed by Eric Stratman. This is Francis Tapon encouraging you to wander and learn.